You may be seated. With great apologies to those who have been reading in advance the scripture this morning, uh, allow me to surprise you to say that the scripture lesson from the Old Testament is not from 1 Samuel, but 2 Samuel chapter 18, beginning at the 24th verse. So listen very carefully, those of you who are expecting a sermon on 1 Samuel. Hear the word of God. This text is at the point at which David is waiting to hear news about uh, the outcome of a civil war that has taken place in Israel and his son Absalom has um, rebelled against him and has led a coup against the king and David is waiting to hear now the outcome of what that battle has been. Now David was sitting between the two gates. The sentinel went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he looked up, he saw a man running alone. And the sentinel shouted and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there are tidings in his mouth. He kept coming and drew near. And then the sentinel saw another man running, and the sentinel called to the gatekeeper and said, See, another man running alone. And the king said, He is also bringing tidings. And the sentinel said, I, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahamaz, son of Zadok. The king said, he is a good man and comes with good tidings. Then Ahimaz cried out to the king, all is well, and prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Himaz answered, when Joab sent your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Then the Cushite came. The Cushite said, good, good tidings for my lord the king, for the Lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my Lord and my King and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. And the King was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And the second lesson is from Romans chapter 8, beginning at the 31st verse and continuing through the end of the chapter. We have been preaching about life after the resurrection and looking at various events of the scriptures that took place after the resurrection and the difference it made in people's lives. And here we have the words of the Apostle Paul who received the revelation of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And out of that experience, as well as many other experiences, writes these words. 
What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? And who will bring any charge against God's elect? Is it God who justifies, who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us, who, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. For close to 19 years, I served a church in New Jersey, the sanctuary of which was surrounded by a cemetery. It is a cemetery that dates back to the church's founding in 1837. When I was interviewing for the call to this church, the interim pastor took me out to the cemetery for a walk and shared with me that when things got tough for him in the job, he would make his way out to the cemetery for a stroll amidst, as he called it, the congregation that doesn't complain. <laughs> I've been fortunate enough never to have served a complaining congregation, thank the good Lord. But I would find myself on occasion taking time either at the beginning or the end of the day to stroll through the cemetery. I found it to be a place of quiet repose, not only for the dead, but also for the living. The longer one passes a church with a graveyard, the more stories one knows that lie underneath the soil. By the time of my departure from that church to come here, I could walk through at least a quarter of the, of the cemetery and tell you a story that lay beneath each of the stones. Over here, I would say to you, if you were following me around the cemetery, over here under this stone lies Mrs. Douglas, who died at the ripe old age of 101, just months after she and her great-grandchildren shoveled a spade of dirt to break ground for our new children's wing. Over here lies Mr. English, great-grandson of the first pastor of the church. Over here, underneath this stone, lies a 30-year-old woman who died from complications of lupus. Over here lies the long-tenured church secretary. Over here lies a man who drank himself to death. Over there, twin baby girls unable to arrive full term from their mother's womb. Here. A mother, or father, mother and father, if you can believe it, murdered at the hand of their son. Uh, 
There, 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 there are the stones of those who lived good long lives. Here, a young woman who escaped the pain of death through suicide. Over there, two teenage boys killed in separate car accidents. And then over here, a little eight-year-old girl who courageously battled, yet later succumbed to leukemia. And then I would walk you over to the edge of the cemetery, and I would point to you an unmarked section of the cemetery where pre-Civil War, the congregation buried its African-American brothers and sisters. Here, I'd say, is where we discovered from an old cemetery map an unmarked section of the cemetery where they bury these African-American brothers and sisters. Yes, you heard me right, unmarked, meaning no stones, no stones to tell their stories, no stones by which to recall even their names. Names and number unknown, says the map. So we put up a stone to remember them in mass and to ensure we not forget a shameful part of our history. So a lot can happen over nearly 19 years of ministry, lots of stories underneath the stones. Some of this came to mind a few weeks ago when Amanda and I were on a little trip to Italy and we were making our way from Florence to Rome when we happened upon the Florence American Cemetery. It's one of the 26 American military cemeteries outside of the United States. Having been to the American Cemetery in Normandy a couple of times, I knew that I had to turn off the road to spend some time here. Stretching over 70 acres, the Florence American Cemetery, a picture of which I took, which is on the cover of your bulletin, holds the resting places of 4,393 American soldiers, most from the Fifth Army, who slogged and fought their way through Italy near the end of World War II. In addition, on the monument's walls are the names of 1,409 others counted as missing in action from nearby engagements. Over 5,800 men, most of them young, many teenagers, who signed up for the cause and laid their lives on the altar of freedom. Etched into stone, their names, their rank, their division, their state, and their date of death. And, those, and for those unidentified, the words, here rests in honored glory a comrade in arms known but to God. Together, the sea of stones tell an overwhelming story of the high cost a nation and its citizens is willing to pay to preserve their way of life and to uphold the ideals they cherish. But then to stroll through the manicured rows is to see not just one big tide of history, but it's also to see on each cross, on each star of David, just one name, one life, one death, which prompts one to imagine the story that lies beneath the stone. Maybe this one was a teenager who just graduated from high school, who no sooner after shedding his cap and gown, marched down to the enlistment office along with his friends to perform his patriotic duty. 
Maybe this one was a new husband who missed his bride terribly and couldn't wait for this bloody thing to be over. And maybe this one was a father whose most recent child had entered the world while he landed at Salerno. Lord knows the stories under the stones. And to imagine each story is to as well imagine the company of those who knew and loved the fallen hero. Who were his parents, his brothers, his sisters, his wife, his girlfriend? Who were the ones who read the telegram or received the visit from the chaplain telling them that on behalf of a grateful country that it was their sad duty to inform them that their beloved had been killed in action? Who were the ones who wept when they got that news? Who were the ones who put a gold star in their window? Who were the ones who lovingly and carefully wrote out the obituary? Because the truth is, what surrounds every stone in every cemetery, military or otherwise, is a circle of those who have been holding a candle for this particular soul, a circle of those who have held this person in their nightly prayers, a circle of those who have loved this man or woman in life and in death, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, from cradle to grave. I'm not sure there's anything in the Bible that makes more sense to me than when the Apostle Paul reminds us that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it never makes more sense to me than when I gather with loved ones at the grave of a departed and see on their faces and in their tears this love that will not let go. It reminds me of how Jesus would say over and over again that if we, God's children, are able to love so much, imagine how much more our Father in heaven loves us. For nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In 2 Samuel, we read of one of the more heartbreaking stories in the Bible. Great King David, the greatest of all the kings of Israel, finds his reign threatened by his own flesh and blood, his son Absalom. Absalom has re rebelled against his father and set himself to set up a coup against him. So David must do what no father would ever wish to do. He wages war against his own son. But though Absalom has set himself against his father as enemy and rival, Absalom still in David's eye is his son. He must repel him, but he cannot stop loving him. So David commands his generals to pursue the rebels, but does so with a command, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Though he be my enemy, he is still my son, and I will hold a candle for him. So we know how the story goes. Absalom is chased down by the generals, and instead of dealing gently with him, once they capture him, they thrust their spears into him and kill him and bury him on the battlefield. 
And the messengers are sent back to the king, and the king awaits word, and the prayer is one of both king and father, that the word, word may be that the rebellion has been quelled and that his son has been spared. But David gets the bad news that, yes, the battle has been won, but his son has not been spared. He has fallen. And though the boy has given his father every reason to celebrate his demise, it's the father in David who can only lament, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Around every stone in every cemetery, there is a circle of those who will not forget and who will never let go. I shared with some of you the story of a man in the church where I grew up whose son was drafted, sent to Vietnam, and was killed. At the cemetery, Ed received the flag from a grateful nation, the one that moments before had draped his boy's casket and then he watched as they lowered his son into the ground. He proudly displayed the flag in his living room. Several years later, President Gerald Ford announced a limited pardon for those who had left the country to escape the draft. Ed took a personal affront to this decision, believing that it paled the sacrifice of his son and other fallen soldiers who had not run away, and in protest, packed up his boy's flag and mailed it back to the White House with the message, if this is what you think of my son's sacrifice, you can have your flag back. A week or so later, Ed received a call from the White House from the President's secretary asking Ed to come to the White House to meet with the President. He agreed to go. They ushered him into one of the White House rooms and he waited there. Within a few minutes, the doors opened and in walked the president, Gerald Ford, with the flag underneath his arm. The two men sat and faced each other, father to father, citizen to citizen, veteran to veteran. And the president proceeded to explain how troubled he was to receive the flag of the young hero, and yet how he could understand the pain and disappointment of a father like Ed. The president explained that he too was a father, though a father who was also commander-in-chief, a commander-in-chief who bore the burden of trying to heal a country from the wounds of war. And so on behalf of a grateful country, the president said, would you please accept back this flag in full appreciation of what your son has done for his nation? Seeing that the president had joined him in his company of grief, Ed received the flag back. Around every stone in every cemetery, behind every name etched in every war memorial, there is a circle of those who will not let go, who will not forget, who will always love. But then you may ask, how can you say this, pastor? Are there not those who die alone and unloved? Not everyone who departs this mortal coil is in the company of love. Not so, says the apostle. For around every stone there is this invisible circle of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit 
the three-person God who circles every soul, every stone, every person, and promises never to let go. Known but to God, says the marker. Known and never separated. Back when I was a boy, probably around 10 years old, my father had taken a day to go, my, my family had taken a day to go to visit my profoundly mentally disabled brother up in a state facility in Pennsylvania, the Polk School, where he was a resident and has since been a resident for over 50 years. On this particular day, my father and I took a walk around the sprawling 2,000-acre campus of the school. The Polk School was founded in 1897, back unfortunately when people of cognitive disability were often abandoned to such places, left to die only within the care of the school staff, but apart from their families. So in our walk that day, we stumbled upon the old cemetery of the school that was no longer in use. The 70 year stones were badly weathered, but still standing. And to this 10-year-old came the surprise to see that the stones had no names. No names. Instead, just numbers. Just numbers. God knows why they had not dignified the stories of those beneath with their names. I fear the answer. So I turned to my father and asked, how will anyone know who these people are if there are no names? And my father said what we all know to be the answer. God knows, my son. God knows. And will never forget. For nothing shall separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord.